first, let's focus uh, on our lead story. Now, yesterday, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trades CEO, Bridget Anderson, was on this show at this hour, expressing her concern about uh, a potential bicycle lane being added along the Broadway corridor. Now, during the Broadway plan debate, which went on ad nauseum last year, uh, the conversation in June uh, specifically, the previous city council endorsed an amendment in support of adding new protected bike lanes along the length of Broadway, and it was supposed to be timed with the completion of the SkyTrain's Millennium Line Broadway extension. Now, City of Vancouver staff have come back to uh, council uh, recently, and they recommended against the idea. After all, there are plans for wider sidewalks for pedestrians and patios uh, to be hopefully uh, uh, added along the Broadway corridor as well. Of course, this is leading to a lot of speculation and conversation, but it was very uh, uh, interesting that Ms. Anderson sent out a press release as the president and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade expressing her concerns about adding a bicycle lane. Listen to her comments from yesterday's show. The Broadway Corridor is the second largest employment centre in British Columbia. So it's an incredibly important area for businesses, but also for residents. Taking away space on the Broadway Corridor doesn't make much sense. We need that avenue open for traffic, both for cars and commercial trucks, for public transit, for emergency vehicles. We also need space for more pedestrian space and more patio space. So it really needs to be a a common sense, balanced approach by council. That was Bridget Anderson, President CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Yesterday, joining me now is Vancouver City Councillor Brian Montague. Mr. Montague, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, you know, when I talked to uh, Bridget Anderson yesterday, a lot of phone calls uh, on our open line or buzz line as well. People uh, are supportive or not supportive, but people get riled up about buzz, bu- uh, bicycle lanes. Uh, and I think people generally are supportive of them, of course. Uh, they're part one part of our transportation system. But certainly this conversation around the Broadway uh, corridor, uh, it's been quite uh, animated, the conversation itself. Your thoughts first and foremost. I know this is uh, recommendations from city staff. Reports come to city all the time. Where does ABC, your fellow ABC councillors, the majority sit on this issue? Yeah, well, you know, I I think I agree with uh, the comments that were made by the Board of Trade, and I agree with recommendations uh, from city staff. Um, You know, they've come back with a recommendation not to include uh, active transportation lanes uh, lanes, uh, in the new Broadway corridor. Um, And I think in the report that they've provided to council, um, you know, they, they hit a lot of real common sense, uh, um, uh, you know, they talk a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that are, are just straight common sense on, on why we should, they're looking at the pros, they're looking at the cons, and they've come to council with this recommendation, and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also been talk, of course, that uh, there is already a, 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 a bicycle lane along 10th Avenue. I mean, I know you're not against bicycle lanes. I don't think anybody's against bicycle lanes being put in, uh, but I guess this is part of that conversation as to how much can you accommodate, because ultimately you still need the commercial traffic to be moving, uh, you need people to be moving, and you also want to have some patio space along a very busy quarter when it comes to people and and jobs? Yeah, I think there's a a number of things you have to look at. And uh, you have to give people options on how to get around the city. And uh, that includes everything, uh, by bike, walking, transit, car. Uh, People use all different uh, modes of of transportation. And we need to make sure that the Broadway corridor is uh, something for, uh, is a place for everybody and accessible to everyone, regardless of how you get around. Um, And, you know, let's be 
let's be very honest here. If we're going to build a bike lane, why would we do it where we already have one? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I want to touch on uh, another issue uh, which has come up uh, this week, and, and, uh, and it was once again another report. Uh, reports are always coming to council, but you're certainly going to be having this conversation. Now, the Broadway plan itself uh, is, you know, it's 485 blocks. It is going to lead to greater density along uh, that corridor. It's a very busy place, a lot of jobs there, significant increase uh, in people moving there as well. Mm-hmm. There was uh, something referred to as a pace of change policy uh, in, right. in one of the reports. And that report basically says that, look, uh, you know, we don't want to be, uh, I guess, uh, leading, le- have so much development, it leads to people being displaced. Uh, and we want to be able to handle the amount of redevelopment and rezoning and density that's going to come to the broad, Broadway issue. They have basically said, I think, five, they're going to take five new applications a year, which I, I'm going to assume five high-rises or five buildings uh, is what the recommendation was from council, uh, from city staff. Now, of course, council saw us to debate it uh, and all that sort of thing. But Housing Minister Revy Kalon has already spoken about this. He was on the show the other day on this issue. I want you to listen to his comments in regards to this pace of change policy and essentially uh, the city staff recommending basically five projects or five high-rises a year would only be moving forward in regards to this Broadway plan. Take a listen. There was three years plus of deliberation. Finally, a plan approved by council. One of the strongest renter protection plans that I'm aware of in North America. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, uh, I think it's time to get to work. So that's what I've been urging to mayor and council is to, but to proceed at the pace that the, the market is ready to proceed at and, and get these projects going. We have passed the Housing Supply Act, and with that gives us the ability to choose eight to ten communities where um, we can have housing targets in place. And if they don't reach those housing targets, the province has the ability to step in and certainly not hope that we're needing to do that. Uh, but we may have to do that, and that's why we put those tools in place. So there's two sort of comments there from the minister, at least two points. One, uh, obviously, we get on with it. You've spent all this time debating this issue. Uh, approving five projects, in the minister's opinion, is too slow. The second issue, and I recognize that comment from him, was the, 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 the provincial government's already promised that moving forward, they will probably announce a list of uh, communities that need greater encouragement in regards to building more housing and more density. Uh, Mr. Kahlo at this point said, look, if this continues the city of Vancouver, it may end up on this list, the naughty list, as I like to call it, even though I know there's right. lots of housing. So <laughs> it's very interesting for a minister uh, to be commenting on this, even though it's a recommendation yet, and the city will, of course, uh, debate this. But I wanted to get your thoughts. I know there'll be much conversation next week at Vancouver City Hall about this issue and this pace of change policy. Uh, I want to see where you, where you and potentially your your um, your colleagues, because you're the majority, where do you sit on this issue right now? Yeah, you know, this is a real a real issue uh, in Vancouver. We, uh, as well as other cities and municipalities, uh, we have a housing issue. We have a real shortage of it. Um, and I think I can sum up, you know, my feelings pretty clearly, pretty quickly by saying that we need more housing, much more housing, and we need it much more quickly. Uh, and a policy around pace of change simply gets in the way. So certainly the recommendation of five projects is too little in your mind. It is too small. You need to be doing a lot more rezoning, or at the very least, uh, you need a lot more housing built quickly in regards to this plan. So you will not be supporting the recommendation, which I think is five projects. I I think we can build far quicker, uh, far more, and uh, I think we can do better. 
So you, so you're, you, you expect you and your colleagues to be pushing a lot further on this uh, next week when you have this I conversation. Can, I can tell you, I'm going to be pushing for, for a lot more to be built uh, in a, a lot shorter period of time. Yeah. Uh, does do your colleagues understand? And I don't mean this make this specifically ABC, but there is a desire. I, I think finally, and I don't care who at parties in municipally or federally or provincially, that there is a desire to just get on with building now in this city uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and you know what was one of the things that we ran on uh, three 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 one. Right, it was. It's all about uh, making it um, easier and quicker to build uh, housing in this city. Uh, and we're striving to get to that. We want to uh, to make sure that there's less red tape, uh, less bureaucracy, so that uh, people can get in and build the housing that's desperately needed. Uh, cl- clarify for me, three, 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 and one. The three is for uh, doing a reno in your place. That's three days, right? That's right, yeah. Three days, three weeks, three months, and one year. So basically, uh, from very small projects like renos, getting permits um, uh, within three days, to very large projects uh, uh, where we can get that done in, in under a year. Right now, those projects are taking, uh, you know, six, seven years to build, and that's just far too long. We can um, we can deliver far much, uh, you know, a hell of a lot more housing, much more quickly if we can uh, if we can reduce the red tape at City Hall. And what are the three weeks for? The three the, the you have three days for renos. What's the three yeah, weeks be like for? For like a single family home. So you, the approval for a single-family home, can be, the, the, the aspiration is for, for approval in three weeks? That's what we'd love to see. And then townhouses, I'm guessing, and condo developments would be three months? Three right? months, that's right. Okay, and one year for towers and that sort of thing. Right. Okay, well, there, that, that, that is aspirational. I'm sure uh, you'll be whole, held to account, certainly by taxpayers <laughs> on Election Day next time, that's for sure. But uh, Brian, I want to thank you so much for being on today because I think these are two big issues this week, and a lot of folks will be paying attention. You've clarified a lot for us today. Really appreciate your time. Great, thanks for having me. Let's talk Hollywood North. A prop designer uh, in uh, production is responsible for obtaining all props needed for that very TV and movie production. Now, a good prop designer can have a huge impact on the look of uh, any show. Uh, think of uh, you know shows like Games, Game of Thrones or many others uh, that uh, you see on TV and the movie. You may see an actor drinking from a glass, sitting in a chair, reading a book, or looking at a painting on a wall. A lot of that all comes down to a prop designer. Now, Booth Hilton has designed props and set pieces for movies for decades, and you've probably seen his work in some of the most popular TV and movie franchises in the last few decades. Now you'll have a chance to own some of his unique pieces, as Booth has put most of his collection and his life's work up for auction. He joins us now to talk a little bit about his time in the movie business, movie and TV business, but also about his collection as well. Booth, thank you for joining us today. Yes, hello. Uh, first and foremost, uh, how did you get started in this business? Uh, well, I graduated in 89 after five years at, at Emily Carr, mm-hmm. and uh, I uh, ended up uh, doing a couple of uh, movies. Uh, the first one was pretty small, but the second one was White Fang too. And we did a lot of totem pole carving, and I got to know the, what was going on, and I said I can do a better job in my own studio. So uh, that's how I started. Wow. Uh, what kind of movies and TV shows have you worked on for our audience? Which, what names would they recognize? Oh, they'd recognize uh, X-Men 1 and 2. Uh, they'd recognize uh, uh, Fantastic Four 1 and 2. iRobots, uh, Sucker Punch, Watchmen, um, Chronicles of Riddick. 
you know, did you, all that stuff. You, you did Men in Black. Men, lots of TV shows. Yeah, did you Men in Black as well? One and Battlestar Galactica, I think, was another one? Yes. Yep, Battlestar Galactica, Eureka, Reaper. Oh, just just anything. So why did you... We did all the musicals. Oh, wow. Wow. That's... uh, (laughs) Those are all names that I think anybody who who, uh, watches TV or movies uh, would be able to recognize right away. Uh, What convinced you that it was time to auction all this work that you put into these great pieces? What convinced you that it was time to auction some of these pieces off? Um, Well, um, we'd moved to Nelson, a beautiful house, and... uh, we got in touch with uh, um, direct um, liquidators uh-huh. with uh, a, a guy named Jeff Schwartz, and he made it easy for us. It, they've been working very hard trying to move our collection. Um, I'm I'm still always going to be working. I mean, I'm a p- professional artist, so I'm always going to be uh, creating new things mm-hmm. while I'm in Nelson. Um, is there a particular favorite piece that you have with all these movies you've worked in and one or two pieces that are, you know, you, you, you feel very close to whether they, they inspired you, whether or not they were unique. Are there one or two pieces you could sort of think that you really enjoyed putting together? Um, you know, that's really hard uh, to, to nail. I know that I'm proud of some of the movies that we did mm-hmm. like Watchmen. I'm very proud of the Watchmen. Um, I, because I think it's a great story. Um, and we would, a lot of it's it's painful. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what inspires you? Like when, when you're working on a set or a new project, uh, what's your creative process? I know you're going to be t- told, okay, here's the scene. Here's what we're trying to do. But like, in your mind, how do you design? How do you put together a scene? Um, well, for us, uh, we're given the problem. And either we uh, get artwork from the art department. Mm-hmm. Or um, they say we need something like this. Can you throw something together? And and away I go. I'm I'm good with shapes and uh, and seeing the potential in in shiny things. <laughs> <laughs> um, like for you as an artist, though, like do you view this? Does it feel like a job? Is it more like a craft? Are you consumed by it when when you are on a set? No, I don't normally myself. I avoid being on set. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, I like to be in the studio and we, we've had a, a lot of, a lot of great people working in the studio and, uh, and, uh, with all different kinds of skills. And, uh, so that eventually coalesces into a, a nice, a nice product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in regards to what you do, um, hands-on, what impact has technology had, had on, on, on on prop designing, huge, huge. Back in the day, we used to make blood knives. It would have a bladder in the uh, in the handle. Okay, and we could zero eighty holes and, and make a make our own um, copy of the hero knife. And then you'd squeeze the handle, and blood would come out of these tiny holes, and it would look like you're cutting your throat or something. Oh, okay. Uh, now they just give you the handle. Or they give you the knife, and they say cut the blade off because it's all CG'd. Oh, so it's all in post-production. Somebody sitting on a computer is gonna, going to do what you used to do. Exactly. And the same goes with um, not, not so much retractable needles are still a thing, mm-hmm. but um, retractable uh, knives were a big deal. And, you know, we'd have to design and engineer, you know, a system for them. And, uh, but that's not done anymore. That's all, that's all post hmm. uh, it has Has technology then taken some of the fun 
out of the the craft. Well, it's certainly taken some work out of the craft, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, um, but in, in, in my world now, I'm in my final last gasp of this whole situation, and uh, um, and then I'm I'm retiring to Nelson, and I'll I'll be making really neat things. I'm going to be making a whole bunch of um, uh, like ray guns and I, I make rockets i make a lot of uh, beautiful rockets and and flying saucer lamps and all that kind of stuff wow and and it's this weekend uh, to my understanding that they'll be auctioning off um your designs yes on sunday on sunday and that's Between 10 and 3 i believe is that 10? right yeah and it'll be online okay and um jeff jeff schwartz will be doing the uh the auction online and um i i again I I've just had so much support and help from his company uh, that and, uh, I can't say I can't say enough. And if so, people are interested. Do in, you go to direct liquidators? I'm, I'm assuming they have a, a space online. Yes, that's that's what I understand. Okay. Um, we had we had a like an open house today. Yep. And uh, at the at, at a new location, I stopped building props and I went strictly into. Just building my own designs and renting them. Oh, interesting. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time. You've done such great work with all the movies you, you've mentioned. And if people are interested in learning more about your work, they can go to Direct Liquidators online. And as you said, the, the auction is online from 10 to 3 on Sunday. Boo, thank you so much and really enjoyed our conversation. And I, and I do hope uh, once you settle into Nelson, you have a, a very uh, productive time there as well because you're not stopping working at all, but it's just a, it's a different location you're moving to. So I'm very happy for you. Yeah, well, thank you, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. The Hells Angels are one of the biggest clubs in the world with a membership of over 3,467 charters in 59 countries. The organization started in 1948 with various smaller clubs merging uh, in the United States. Now, various police and international intelligence agencies have called them an organized crime Syndicate. Now, today in the Vancouver Sun, reporter Kim Boland has an excellent article called Hells Angels at 40 Criminal Convictions and Clubhouse Seizures Marked the Bikers' Celebratory celebratory Year in BC. Now, I highly recommend you check out that story. It's a great read. Uh, Ms. Boland does a great job painting a picture of the Hells Angels in BC and where they stand after many years of fighting civil forfeiture of their properties and investigations of their members. Uh, Kim Boland joins us now. Kim, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, really enjoyed the article. I'm glad you wrote it, uh, and and we and it's uh, it's I think it's a great benefit to, to for all of us here in British Columbia in regards to where the Hell's Angels are, and and sort of the work the police have been doing as well. How would you describe the Hell's Angels today as an organization? Are they weakened with this greater onslaught? It would appear from law enforcement. Are they a weakened club, or, or are they still sort of a top of the pecking order here in Vancouver? Well, I think it's a bit of both, quite honestly. I mean, I don't think they were thrilled to lose this uh, ruling in the Court of Appeal uh, where they had to turn their clubhouses, three of their clubhouses, over to the B.C. government. That ruling came down February 15th. It was a complete reversal of what the B.C. Supreme Court found in June 2020, uh, which went totally against the Director of Civil Forfeiture and said, look, you know, this you tried to prove they're an international criminal organization. You failed. So what if a few members have criminal conviction? So what if the clubhouses are all fortified with cameras 
and all kinds of measures to stop people from booking in or getting in uh, doesn't mean uh, that they are criminals and should have to turn these clubhouses over. So that ruling, you know, went like 180 um, last month. And as a result, the government has now seized three clubhouses of the organization. So that's definitely a big hit for them. However, as my story said, they are still at the top of the heap, if you will, and they have more members in their program than ever before, up into the 130-plus mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, uh, can this case go now to the Canadian Supreme Court? Well, they haven't filed yet. I check every day. Uh, you know, I do believe that they, at this point, plan to seek leave. They have until April 17th. It's a 60-day time limit after the ruling comes down at the Court of Appeal level. Uh, so I have been told that that is the plan right now. But some people think that it could be worse for them if they do try to seek leave because, you know, you're almost cementing the ruling if it becomes the ruling of the Supreme Court of Canada and it goes against them. So we'll wait and see. Uh, certainly, this court case has gone on for almost 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I would assume that they would take it as far as they can take it, especially when they're on the losing end right now. Um has there been uh, – certainly my perception is uh, heading in that direction. I'm looking in that direction is that there's been greater uh, um, uh, focus by law enforcement on this particular organization over the last 15 to 20 years. How would you grade that? I mean have they – beyond the seizures, which I think is obviously be viewed as a win. But overall, have police been successful in thwarting some of what this group does? Certainly there have been a lot of convictions of members of the Hells Angels, up to and including conspiracy to commit murder. Larry Amaro of the West Point chapter was convicted last August of conspiracy to commit two different murders. He's still awaiting sentencing. Uh, We had two Hells Angels convicted of manslaughter for beating to death a grandfather in Kelowna a few years back. And then there are a whole bunch of trafficking, conspiracy to traffic, and conspiracy to import uh, cocaine and other drugs. So on that front, there have been a lot of successful prosecutions in recent years. However, the big one, getting a court in B.C. to declare that the Hells Angels is a criminal organization here, that has not happened, despite there being several attempts uh, to have that case made. Mm-hmm. Um in regards to other organized crime groups, uh, I think of Asian organized crime groups, there's many other groups based on ethnicity, um, you have uh, you know, Mexican cartels, all of that. Um, how do the Hells Angels, broadly speaking, remain top of the heap after all of uh, the, one would assume, uh, many other transnational organized groups wanting to uh, have a footprint here in, in British Columbia and in Vancouver? You have significant more uh, police presence and law enforcement watching uh, Hells Angels, how are they able to uh, survive uh, and maybe thrive isn't the right word, but at the very least remain where they are? Well, they work with other criminal organizations. I mean, we've seen cases where some members of the Hells Angels have links to cartels, some have links to Asian organized crime. Uh, Certainly those involved at the highest echelons of organized crime, you know, they're good entrepreneurs. Uh, They need product internationally. They do their best to get that product internationally, and that means working with other organizations when need be. Uh, The other thing that they have done uh, that police says has made them very successful is they have a whole network of uh, lower-level gangs, if you will, uh, which they call support clubs. Some people call them puppet clubs. 
and uh, that sort of spreads their influence further around the province. And uh, these uh, other clubs, they ride motorcycles, they kind of mimic the structure of the Hells Angels, they have chapters, some of them have clubhouses, and uh, they're what the police call a farm team uh, for the Hells Angels. So they recruit new members through them, and they work with them around the province. Mm-hmm. These puppet clubs, I mean, is there a conscious effort to... Uh have the tentacles of this organization directly or indirectly throughout this province? I mean, there's a lot of smaller communities, you know, when I think of where I grew up in Williams Lake and many of the lumber towns, less sawmills, sometimes there's folks who obviously uh, hit hard times because the traditional sawmill job may be gone, the natural resource job is gone. There is a greater use of drugs at times, fentanyl, alcohol, whatever it may be. Is there a greater desire for these organizations to push into some of these communities in the interior and the north because of the the potential customer base? Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, you know, organized crime, regardless of which group it is, is going to go wherever they can make money. And you can make money across this province, unfortunately. And as we know, there are a lot of people suffering from the toxic drug supply. A lot of people have died mm-hmm. uh, in recent years. But that doesn't seem to matter to the people at the top that are making money off of the suffering of others. Where where, where do you think law enforcement, uh, fail is probably not the right word, but at least where it's challenged in regards to making a great greater dent with organizations like this? Well, I think that, you know, from what I've seen covering a lot of court cases over the years, whether they're kind of conspiracy to commit murder cases involving organized crime or big drug cases involving organized crime, some of which have involved the Hells Angels, they are very challenging investigations in that they take a huge number of resources uh, to do kind of a long-term look at something uh, that they believe an organized crime group is doing. Uh, You know, in the past, they've used agents, uh, people that sort of pretend they want to get into the Hells Angels program. Uh, We had the case of Michael Plant uh, 20 years ago where he infiltrated uh, the East End chapter of the Hells Angels on behalf of the police. It ended up being a successful investigation. I think more than a dozen people were convicted. Uh, But it went on for a long time, years really, and it was very expensive and it took a lot of resources. So I think sometimes uh, police take, uh, you know, the lower level cases, if you will, because they're quicker, it's easier to collect the evidence, number one, and they're quicker uh, to go through the courts, number two. But, you know, I think a lot of people would like to see Uh, the top players in organized crime, whether it be the Hells Angels or any other group, uh, you know, targeted by law enforcement and successfully prosecuted for wrongdoing. So do you think if we had greater resources or is it perhaps our balkanized policing structure that gets in the way of that? Or is it just a lack of political will and and, and budgets? Well, I think they always have to prioritize what they're going to do, right? And, uh, you know, we don't ever kind of sit back and look at the overview when it comes to policing and also to the judiciary, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, right now people are very, very concerned about what's happening in the downtown east side of Vancouver and with chronic offenders and repeat offenders and perfectly understandable, right? But, you know, when resources then go to one thing, because that's uh, what the public is most concerned about, they're taken away from somewhere else, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure people necessarily understand that, whether it's uh, police resources or prosecutor resources, you know, there is a finite number. uh, And, uh, you know, when they're allocated somewhere, they're sometimes taken away from other investigations that perhaps are more challenging or long term. Kim, let's touch on those clubhouse seizures that you were mentioning at the beginning of our conversation. Um, In regards to the loss of those clubhouses, uh, how important are they in regards to, A, the impact on, on, on the angels themselves, 
uh, and the psyche of the of the club in in regards to how much of an impact do you think this will actually have on weakening them? Well, I think it's a huge symbolic victory for the government because they're saying that they believe that, you know, crimes were planned and orchestrated from these clubhouses and that if they were to remain in the hands of the Hells Angels, that would continue to happen. The court has now agreed with them, the highest court in the province. Of course, as I said, we may, you know, still see an appeal or leave to appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada level. Uh, but for now, these clubhouses are in the hands of the B.C. government. There still are four more that are owned by different Hells Angels chapters. But three of the other chapters are now renting uh, different buildings around the Lower Mainland. So, you know, something that might be because uh, this case had been going on for so long and they didn't want other clubhouses to be targeted. Uh, so it is changing. the. Potentially, this is the reason that some of the behavior of the club has changed. These clubhouses are significant in that they meet there weekly. They hold events there. Uh, they have anniversary parties there. There was supposed to be um, what is known as the Screwy Ride to pay tribute to a former member or a dead member named Dave uh, Schultz. And that was supposed to leave next month from the East End Clubhouse. Well, now they have to leave from somewhere else because they no longer have that clubhouse. So, you know, I think at the very least it's a symbolic uh, victory for the government. But, you know, it's also $3 million worth of real estate uh, in Kelowna in a prime location right beside an area that's about to be redeveloped on the lake uh, in East Vancouver and in Nanaimo. Uh, In Nanaimo, which Mm -hmm. is where this civil forfeiture case began back in 2007, uh, the Hells Angels have already, um, you know, they have uh, purchased two neighboring houses. So they kind of all have another place right beside the original clubhouse. Uh, So we'll see what happens uh, with those properties in the coming years. Uh, in regards to uh, other properties, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about uh, you know a membership of three thousand and four hundred and sixty-seven charters in fifty-nine countries. Where did the Hell's Angels in British Columbia stand today in regards to power, in regards to influence, in regards to uh, the size and structure of of their um, organization uh, compared to others uh, in North America or Europe? Well, I think the BC Hell's Angels have been considered one of the um, one of the wealthiest uh, groups of Hells Angels uh, across Canada and across North America. Uh, Certainly we've seen law enforcement go after Hells Angels and other outlaw motorcycle gangs in the United States uh, for a longer period of time than they have here in B.C. Until 2001, I mean, this club, uh, you know, came into B.C. or other um, motorcycle clubs patched over to the Hells Angels in 1983, uh, July 1983. Uh, But there were no criminal convictions of members of the Hells Angels in B.C. until 2001. So, Mm. you know, I know uh, Rick Carnello, the longtime spokesman would go on CKNW and I remember him going on Bill Good and saying, look, none of our members are convicted of any offenses. We feel like the police are targeting targeting us unfairly. Uh, but it's a really different story now, 22 years later, where we have you know dozens of criminal convictions over the years. Mm-hmm. They can't really say that, but they're still powerful. Uh, they're still influential at the international level. Uh, some of that evidence came out at the civil forfeiture case about how they go to these world meetings, these national meetings. Um, but definitely the Hells Angels uh, in BC are considered the, some of the wealthiest and uh, most powerful in Canada. Well, uh, I really appreciate the article you wrote. A good read. Highly recommend it to our listeners. It's in today's Vancouver Sun. Kim, thank you so much for your time today. Have a wonderful weekend. You too, Jess. Anytime. 
uh, let's talk about Utah. Usually we don't talk about news out of Utah, but I think it's interesting uh, to discuss what occurred there yesterday. Two laws were signed by Republican Governor Spencer Cox. Uh, The laws prohibit kids under 18 from using social media between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. They require age verification for anyone who wants to use social media uh, in the state and opens the door to lawsuits on behalf of children claiming social media harm them. Uh, Other states are potentially looking at this as well. Uh, It's expected uh, uh, social media companies are are expected to sue before the law takes effect in March of 2024. Uh, Lawmakers in Arkansas, Texas, Ohio, and Louisiana, all blue states technically, uh, sorry, red states, and of course blue states like New Jersey are also uh, looking at similar proposals as well. Uh, and it is a very interesting conversation in regards to the tech uh, and its you know, significant growth of the last two decades. Uh, and now you're seeing bits and pieces out of different states where they are pushing back on some of these social media uh, giants as well. Do you mean to talk a little bit about Utah's law? And would we ever consider something like that, like that here in British Columbia? Is Jesse Miller? He's a social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. As always, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I saw this yesterday, and I said, you know, I need to talk to you about this. What did you? What do you think of it? What's your take on this? Okay, so obviously, when we want to protect kids, this is a battle cry to get people kind of together and say, here's the problem. Utah has highlighted a number of mental health studies that indicate that social media is problematic for youth, but they're looking at the wrong studies. This is one of the biggest issues that we have with any kind of politician introducing any legislation about limiting social media access for youth. Now, Utah itself, obviously a red state. Uh, Salt Lake City is a blue city, but the state itself is red, very similar to, let's say, Calgary and Edmonton and then the rest of Alberta. But when we consider the idea of limiting social media, what they're suggesting is kids from 10.30 at night by, to 6.30 in the morning are not allowed to be on the Internet and interacting on social media. Parents are allowed to have full access to their kids' social media accounts, messages, and read everything that they please. And within that, and when they're advocating for mental health, they're forgetting that there are kids out there who don't have really positive and informed parental support. Those parents are more inclined to go through their kids' messages to try and correct behavior as opposed to understanding where their kids are. So the law itself is problematic and the approach itself is problematic. Uh, so you, you, you expect a, a pushback from OEC uh, uh, social media companies and potentially uh, this going to court? Yeah, very much so. And again, it's, I appreciate how social media companies will lobby for their right to participate on a 24-hour clock and target use. But the thing is, the only thing I like about this law is minimizing um, not only the age gating, but it, minimizing the advertisement. So part of that also becomes advertisement content. What can kids see? The thing is, there's always going to be a workaround. Kids are always going to find their way around. We need good education, good media literacy, and we can mitigate a lot of those issues that maybe more conservative people see with social media, with conversations about what kids see and how to discuss it as a family. Uh, I guess with this legislation, you're also shifting the burden of proof uh, and you're requiring social media companies to show their products aren't harmful. Partially, and I think actually this law is more on parents than it is on social media companies itself. It actually puts a lot of the onus on parents to verify who their kids are, scan government documents and submit them, and then also puts it on parents to basically verify if their children are online. What does the consequence become if a child's online at 11 o'clock at night and has subverted this? Does this mean that a family now in some way has to be held punitively responsible? Do kids get arrested because they've been online at 1 o'clock in the morning? There are a lot of conversations that kind of evolve from that space, but more importantly, is the 
onus on parents to control their children? Or as a society, are you saying social media is not good, so we're going to block this out until your child's deemed to be age appropriate for the content itself? It wasn't this inevitable, though, beyond red states and blue states and, and all that type of thing, because we've actually allowed these tech companies to grow too fast. They're too big, too much power, too much access to our data. And now we're trying to corral them back, and it's very difficult to do. And I'm not saying it's going to, every bit of legislation is going to be perfect. Some of it may have to – some of them may – it will go to court. It may get struck down, but something else will come. Inevitably, there is going to be greater and greater guardrails around uh, these social media companies and their access to our children and the use of that data. And that, that ultimately, in my mind, red state or blue state, that's a good thing. It can be. I think the bigger issue becomes what does it mean to regulate? And so, yes, we should have gating in place to protect children from content. The question is whether or not in one part of the world that content is deemed to be appropriate or not. Utah as a state has just limited gender-affirming care for trans children. So imagine your kid is looking at how they fit into the world themselves. And if they're a member of the LGBTQ2 community, now they're looking for content. But they can't find that content because a law prohibits their participation online. But if a parent now sees that, that parent can then and choose how they're going to navigate their child going through something. Now, obviously, parental rights are an important part of the conversation, but not every parent right means that it's on the right side of history. So within that, this concept of parents being you know, fully informed might not be the best thing. And that's where some of these concerns come into play. Should a social media company be allowed to transmit content? Should a child be allowed to access it? What does it mean for the sense of regulating that content? And who deems that to be appropriate? Do you think parents have a right uh, and act to access their children's social media accounts? Yes and no. Uh, it, it's subjective. You know, the, the question becomes one as parents, you know, where do you feel comfortable with the, with the tools you've given your child? What red flags is your child demonstrating outside of that space? And at the same time, what, does, what do we teach kids about love and care? If we teach that love and care comes with oversight and, and, and violation of perceived privacy, that means that in their adult lives, they're looking for the exact same thing. Maybe the relationships they choose to be in are only based on this idea of, I go through the messages and that's how I trust you. Within that, social media is a whole new demographic of conversations for parents. It's not a 20th century value, it's 21st century value, and it's not for 20th century values to write them. Uh, would you agree with that we have allowed these companies to, to get ba- to get too big? And that, that's just following up the previous question I asked, because, uh, you know, I, I think that's the core issue. I think they've just gotten so big, and they've infiltrated our lives. And, and maybe that's my choice as a consumer, that I've allowed that to happen, or not, I just think that these companies have inflicted change, and, and a lot of it has been positive. I'll be saying that there is disruption, and I get that, and I accept that, and I like technology. But they have undermined a lot of what I think is very important, which is the safety of our children. They create these social media apps, so you will be addicted to them in some capacity. We do have challenges there. It has led to significant challenges in regards to kids and how they interact with their friends. Uh, There's bullying and all those types of things. I mean, at its core, don't we have to bring these companies down a notch or two, just to remind them, like it's it, this is this has gone too far, and they've gotten too big, and they have access to to too much of our information. You know, yesterday we saw the CEO of TikTok uh, communicating this to Congress, and it was the idea of what can ByteDance do, the parent company of TikTok. We can apply the same thing to Meta, right? What can Facebook do? What can Instagram do? A lot of these companies, because of the size, should be broken up. But we need to see regulation that's introduced based on legitimate health concerns. 
So we know that certain video games can be addictive based on certain parts of the brain being being stimulated. It doesn't mean that all video games in that sense are stimulating and, and leading to addiction issues. Social media itself, I love communications. I study communications. I have a master's degree in communications. It doesn't mean at the end of the day that I'm so obsessed with it that's the only thing in my life. And so when we consider how social media itself, it can be regulated, it comes down to the individual. What does the individual make choices about? So when we talk about big tobacco, we talk about alcohol. What are the things that we've learned? What are the health influences we can introduce? What can we educate people with making better choices? And even historically, what are the things that you have faced as a family that where alcohol or tobacco have been negatives? The more we bring education in, the more we bring healthy conversations, we show people what the options can look like. That's where anything that's deemed to be not good for us can become something that is multifaceted in its approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you, Jess. Michael Donahue was 40 years old when he disappeared on March 24th, 1991, 32 years ago. Uh, Around 12.30 in the afternoon, Michael and his family were near the Blanchard School playground in Victoria, a short distance from his family when he disappeared. Uh, Victoria Police Department says a number of other families were in the area uh, for a uh, touch football game. It is a court case that has certainly, sorry, sorry, it was a story that has caught the attention of British Columbians from day one uh, and it is one that we continue to talk about. And I wanted to, to um, have our next guest join us because he's one, it's a story that he has covered many times. Uh, John Daly is a former host, of course, CKNW's Back in the Beat. He's a former Global News investigative journalist as well. John, welcome. Good to be with you, Jazz. Bad uh, day. Yeah. Exactly. 32 years ago today. Exactly. Yeah, it really is. You know, when I when I saw the, um, uh, just a mention of it in the news earlier today, it got m- me to thinking, even, you know, when I started in the news business, uh, having covered this story, um, did you cover it right from the, from day one? Yeah, I'm, you know, I was trying to remember the very first one I did. I think it was the Monday after the Sunday, uh, ended up reproducing some of the Czech TV material and uh, putting it out. And then we went over to Victoria, uh, went into Michael's room. Uh, eventually, we got video from the parents of Michael playing and talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did everything we could. I mean, the news did everything they could. You know, what made this such a horrible story, Jazz, was the age of the victim, just mm-hmm. four years old. Cherubic, blonde little kid, uh, you know, lovely uh, kid. He was only 50, 51 pounds. Uh, you know, his his parents, both of his parents were just yards and yards away from the playground where he disappeared. There were zero leads. No eyewitnesses saw anybody taking him away or leading him away or him running off. Nothing like that. So there were zero clues. He came from a good family. And, uh, you know, the police were right on it. They jumped on it. The, the people who were there for that flag football game, uh, there were about 50, 60 people. They did an immediate search. They called the cops. The cops were there in half an hour. Uh, you know, the Victoria uh, City Police, then it was the RCMP joined in. Uh, the other municipal police forces, everybody jumped on this thing. And it was horrible because there was just nothing. Mm-hmm. It was just terrible. And this happened at 12.30, as I was saying, uh, in the early afternoon. And he was uh, in the uh, Blanchard School playground in Victoria, just a short distance away from his family. And there were family and, of course, spectators in the area at the time for a mm-hmm. touch football game. So this is your typical weekend or uh, sort of get-together with family and friends. 
and, and I guess what hits you hardest as a parent is just, you know, it's not like this is a child out older that's out late at night or something happened. This is a no. case of a four-year-old in and around family and friends and just vanishes. It was the first time that little Michael had been allowed to walk over to the swings and the play set and the playground by himself. His uh, mom was on, had a six-month-old baby that she was dealing with at the car. Uh, her, her, his dad was there. Uh, he was unloading stuff for the football game. And, you know, uh, it was just a matter of moments, and he just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know Crystal, uh, uh, Michael's mom, you know, uh, blames herself for, you know, taking her, her eyes and allowing him to go over to the playground. But, you know, back then, when you think about it, 1991, uh, you know, if you could, as long as your kid's within eyesight and is going to, to go on the swings of the, the teeter-totter, you know, why not, right? Yeah. And it was just an absolutely baffling case. And, you know, since then, Jazz, there's been so so much. I mean, the Victoria Police involved the FBI. I think it was like uh, nearly a half a dozen or, or so uh, detectives went down to Quantico, the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI, to sort of work, rework the case with those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the RCMP has helped as much as they can, you know, doing computer generated uh, versions of what Michael would look like through the years. Uh, a year or so ago, they did a uh, they had an artist do a sketch of what he would look like now. Uh, you know, it, it, the family was on Oprah. They were on uh, America's Most Wanted. They were on Geraldo. Uh, you know, every everything has been done that can possibly be done, and this is just a, an ongoing, you know, deep, deep, deep mystery. Yeah, and 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 Crystal has said she believes Michael is alive. Uh, he'd be in his thirties now, of course. Uh, uh, but they always uh, hold out hope. Uh, they have a, a, a yearly yeah. walk as well uh, in regards to raising funds for Child Find BC, and they're going to do the same on the 25th uh, in regards to um, Michael. Um, and this I guess that's Sunday. part of it. Yeah, this Sunday, of course. And and I, I guess they, she still certainly holds out hope that he is alive. And he, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's it, it happens. You know, in and around where they live, a safe area. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you know, in those days, you you know, you'd feel comfortable. I think you'd feel comfortable today if you're in and around your neighborhood, you know, the people and you're out there, uh, you don't expect something like that to happen. And I don't know what else any parent could really do beyond never, never leaving them out uh, away from your eyesight at all. But I mean, even even that's expected from a parent. an Apple AirTag on every kid you've got. Yeah. I mean, this is just such a bizarre case. The the best construction, I think, the, the Dunahee family has is that somehow maybe uh, he was abducted by uh, a person or a family that couldn't have kids, they've raised him, and that today, maybe through uh, genetics and genealogy, if he ever uh, submits his DNA to 23, whatever it is, or one of the other, uh, you know, genealogy things, that Mm -hmm. they'll be able to, uh, you know, connect with him and find him and find out what happened. Yeah, it is. It is truly perplexing, and and uh, but I am I am always amazed at um, Mr. Dunhee's family's uh, courage. Uh, they have mm-hmm. uh, continuously uh, been at the forefront, always made themselves available to media to continue to talk about the story. And I think it's very important. And uh, you know, my heart goes out to them as a parent, as as uh, someone who's covered this yeah. story as well. John, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. My pleasure, Jazz.
Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we asked, is it time to limit teens' access to social media like they plan to do in Utah? And what is the proper etiquette when it comes to approaching celebrities for photos or an autograph? Joining us today is a regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in, in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Welcome, ladies. Hi, guys. Hi. Well, let's talk about Utah. I didn't think I'd ever start a Friday rap panel with Let's Start with Utah. But Neither did I. I know. Well, two laws signed by the Republican governor there uh, on Thursday which prohibits kids under 18 from using social media between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30. It'll require age verification for anybody who wants to use social media in the state and open the door to lawsuits on behalf of children claiming social media harmed them. Collectively now, the, the Republican mayor, uh, Republican governor says they seek to prevent children from being lured to apps by addictive features and from having ads promoted to them. Now, Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. I mean, uh, adults get addicted to this stuff. This stuff is set up psychologically to have us addicted. I don't care if it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Twitter, whatever it may be. TikTok. What do you think about our Republican governor friend, Spencer Cox, saying enough's enough, we're going to make some changes? I mean, so I'm kind of torn because I think when I look at it, it's a good idea. But I wonder, how are they going to enforce this? Because I know they say they have to have parental consent. But, I mean, kids can put any age. You know, are they going to do like a face scan of the parent to make sure that they're of age, that they're allowing them? Like, I don't understand how they're going to enforce this because kids as we know, have a way of doing what they want. I mean, teenage Leah would hate this, but adult Leah <laughs> is like, I, I understand. Because, I mean, it is, you go down a rabbit hole. I mean, us as adults, I mean, I'll spend two and a half hours looking at cats on TikTok. Shut up, Sarah. And, um, and so I'm like, I'll be like, what did I do with my night? You know, so does, does, I get Does this it. seem like, does this seem like the movie Footloose, which, by the way, I've never seen, but I understand the plot line is somewhat similar. I, guess I love like, Footloose. This is like Footloose with, with like a computer, is it not? Yeah, oh yeah. you know, you're actually right. But, the, but the, the small town is not going to have any of this crazy newfangled social media stuff. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Utah law will require that parents be given access to the child's account. And if you sue them, the onus is actually on the social media company to prove that their, their product is but not addictive. How do not they on give the pr- access? How does the parent give access to this? This is what I want to know. Yeah, because, probably. I mean, you can say they're 18, 19, right, when you sign up for most of I guess staff. maybe there's going to have to be some rules. Now, other states are looking at this. I mean, it's it's uh, they are red states, but there are also blue states as well that have said, no, we're going to sure. do the same thing. Arkansas, Texas, Ohio, and Louisiana, which I guess would be red states, and then New Jersey, a blue state, uh, is also looking at this. California is also going to um, introduce some sort of legislation, that's it, which they say puts kids' safety first. So this stuff yeah. is all coming, this as is, Sarah. This is is more like a legislation thing though i mean like i you know i hate to change the topic but it's not unlike in texas where they have a law now that somebody can anybody can sue somebody that may have been in some way shape or form helping in in uh, providing abortion services to somebody not the actual person that is actually receiving the care but anybody like even an uber driver so it's this kind of weird you know reverse legislation in which it's like oh yeah will you prove it 
And yeah, but you know, in this in this case, though, I mean, you're already seeing lawsuits when, and we all know Americans love to sue just in regards to the addictive oh God, nature God, of this. Yeah. And they're they're talking about the impact of mental health on kids. So there are lawsuits already, yeah. and you're eventually going to see a class action lawsuit coming out I, of this. I'm not denying I mean, any of that. The, the United States has 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 like not touched this as a and you know no. Canada either as a topic. I mean, there have to be some sort of rules about social media. Right now, talking about that in the states. They, they've got, you know, TikTok in China, for instance, is not the same TikTok that you've got in the United States and Canada. It's a completely different animal. So mm-hmm. these are the issues that have to be discussed. You know, it's, it, you can't enact it, though, as a state issue. It's got to be a country issue, much like Canada. Like, it would be very hard to say, you know, in B.C. you can't do this. I mean, kids are just going to say, my location is in Alberta. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I, I think at its core what's happened here, in my, my two cents, is government generally, not just here in Canada, U.S., Europe, we've allowed these tech companies to get too big, swallow exactly. up other other yeah. social media sites. Like, you know, Facebook has WhatsApp, it has Instagram. They've just gotten so big. And now you're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. And nobody knows how to do it. And Nobody uh, wants MySpace, by the but way. I mean, I just no. the water. <laughs> but I mean, social media can be a blessing and a curse. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, for kids, they're getting bullied on it, you know, but then some of them that are introverts can actually find friends. So, like, it's good and bad, you know, definitely. Mm. But I think it definitely has to be policed somewhat, for sure, because a lot of kids commit suicide from being bullied from pictures on their social media and stuff. So, like, definitely there's something to it. It's it just I don't know on. how they're going to enforce it. It goes on know. and on. Right now, the Canadian government arguing with Facebook and Meta, like, about, uh, you know, paying for um, the actual use of newspaper items, et cetera, from the Canadian press, right? And yeah. mm-hmm. Facebook threatening Canada. So this is the thing is you're now in a standoff between a government and a multi-trillion dollar operation. You've got to be able to stand there and look down the barrel of the beast and say, we're not going to take this anymore. Yeah, and, and that's, that's part of it. I mean, yeah. these companies that can't the say... You can, United countries. Yeah, you can't say that these companies can't say we want to post news and say we don't we shouldn't have to pay for it. They're, they're, they're dis- yeah, exactly. a distribution. They just they, and then they're not paying their taxes either. No, so. no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, our next question is: What is a proper etiquette when it comes to approaching celebrities for photos or an autograph? This all comes from, uh, of all people, a woman named Rhea Ripley, who I didn't know about, but our producer Stephen Chang, who's a big wrestling fan, I got to put that out there. He's actually <laughs> heading to WrestleMania, uh, but she is a, a superstar in the, in the wrestling world. And she tweeted something out recently where she just got fed up because fans were following her uh, in an airport. And uh, she, and of course, in many cases, fans have many things, many uh, things that they want signed. And in some cases, they want to resell that stuff on eBay. And, and so these are professional collectors at times. But it is an ongoing issue, not just with WWE stars, but football players, movie stars. Uh, they are constantly inundated and in, in an era of social media and where celebrities do try to be a little closer with fans. It is an ongoing issue when it comes to proper etiquette when you approach a celebrity or a, a public figure for a photo or an autograph. Leah, have you ever seen fans, um, uh, I guess, behaving badly uh, in, in your world? When you know, whether it be radio <laughs> or being around in broadcasting. Yeah. So uh, years ago, um, at, you know, being on TV, you get recognized, right? So I'm mm-hmm. sure you do too. And Sarah. So I was out in Harrison Hot Springs on vacation and I was in this restaurant it was a Saturday it was packed like packed and this lady from the very far end of the restaurant yelled are you Leah Hawaii I mean she was at the very far end and I had to yell back yes (laughs) and she's like do you live here and I was like no I'm on vacation actually the chopper picks me up yes (laughs) 
I've had some pretty funky experiences. Always when I'm never ready, makeup's not done. Yes. <laughs> You'll be like, oh, you're Leah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> Sarah, how about you? Because you you also, you know, you've been on TV for many years and radio as well. Uh, you comment on real estate issues uh, and you've been on national television as well when you were living in Toronto. Uh, do, you, do you run into folks sometimes that are perhaps a tad rude or pushy? The, the 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 backhanded compliment is you look a lot better in person. Yeah. Which is like, yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, and I and I'm not sure what that means. My favorite, of course, is I remember this is years ago, and this is before social media. And I was sick. I was I actually had taken a day off from the morning news, and I was sick as a dog. And I had gone to the local um, pharmacy, and I was wearing you know like an old raincoat and rubber boots and probably my pajamas. And I probably looked like I'd been hit with a you know ten foot pole. Just like just horrifying. And I'm sniffling as I'm looking at the NyQuil and all the rest of this stuff. And this woman comes up to me and says, excuse me, are you Sarah Daniels? And I look at her, you know, snotty nose and the whole thing. And I said, yes. She goes, you look awful. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of know that, you dumbass. I mean, seriously. Wow. You know, tell me something I don't know. Or, but, but it's always been things like weird, just weird stuff. A lot of people are like the vast majority of people are super nice and they, they actually, they can't believe it's been so long since I was on the news. They, and they, that freaks them out. Or they just saw me on this show or they just saw me on that show, which is always very flattering. But it's usually some weird thing. Like if, if it's off putting, it's usually, oh, you're not Sarah Daniel. She's a lot shorter. Go, okay. Yeah. Sure. I sure, always whatever, get you're whatever actually floats nice. your boat. You're right? Right? really i get wow you're actually nice and i'm like well what do you expect wow. me to be like yeah i get it all the time <laughs> like am i supposed to be um an it's, itch with a bee what's the it, deal <laughs> it's been weird like over like i mean like i there's still to this point where i can be walking in a, like a mall or something like that and you can see people and they start staring at you and you can see they, they their yeah. heads start to swivel as you walk by and i'll hear like that's Sarah Daniels. <laughs> and i'm thinking like if they're excited about seeing me and whispering about seeing me what would happen if Tom Cruise was in the neighborhood? Oh. Like these people would lose their. So if you're excited about seeing me, people, a former third tier local celebrity, yeah. it's time to pull yourselves together. People lose their. What about their... you, Jazz? What well, they I, 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 yeah. I find I, I get a lot of folks. Uh, you know, first of all, generally people are very polite, and then I have I like. But being... you were a politician too, so that's so they, they and in ah, doing yeah. talk radio, they they all want to come in and, and debate an issue or talk about an yeah. issue, and generally people are polite, but you always get the occasional belligerent person who's got the world yeah. figured out and doesn't yeah. really want to anybody but and, I also, and the earth is flat yeah. yes yeah. exactly you get that occasionally but i always you know when i did a documentary years ago on um an indian cinema so bollywood stars who you know with a mm-hmm. huge indian population i remember mm-hmm. we were filming something backstage and these are huge stars like ashwari or rai you know they got major contracts with cosmetic companies and everything that how close people try to get and they 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 want pictures and now with social media everybody's yeah. got a phone and they're just mm-hmm. pushing they don't under, uh, respect public just like personal space and how close close they no. get and then especially with women because you got so many men surrounding like it's personal space and they just they get so yep. close they feel they can touch you there's no sense of uh, just where you are and just proper etiquette i find and that's yeah. the hardest part and uh but but i mean generally speaking people are pretty pretty nice i always found it very interesting when i lived in india or in china and when tourist season would start you think you have anonymity when you're living in these countries with over a billion people but always <laughs> i always have somebody coming up to me in new delhi or beijing <laughs> Hey Jazz, how are you doing? I got, I 
to like turn around going, what? Where, where did that that's come great. from? You can't get away from it. You really I think, can't. And that's a popular name, Jazz. Yeah, too, right? exactly. I, and I would like to think, I mean, I've certainly seen, I have seen very famous people in restaurants and mm-hmm. in Canada and while I've been in the States. And I've certainly found in Canada, you can see the Canadians, we're, we're so polite. We're looking out right. of the corner of our eyes. You know, we don't want to be disrespectful. It's the whole Canadian thing. Whereas I've seen Americans see a celebrity down in the States and it's, you know, all boundaries right are off. Face. It's just yeah. right in their face. I, I think that that's obviously a generalization, but I've certainly seen it over the years. Yeah. Canadians in Canada are, are still much more, we're much more, mm-hmm. my goodness, respect space. It's just very Canadian to, to not yeah. be rude. Absolutely. Although I've seen it at a cactus club uh, in downtown here. Sean Penn was a table down a couple of, about mm-hmm. 15 feet away. And the t- person next to me got up and puts up their iPhone. And then you, you can tell oh they're trying to do God. the close up shot just to get a shot oh, of Sean no. Penn at the cactus club. So we are polite oh. generally, but don't think Canadians don't lose their minds when they're near celebrities. So I'd actually, you know what? I would be the one that would stand up in front of the guy's camera and said like, you know what? Dial it back, buddy. Yeah. Well, remember, I saw you in the pearls there a long time ago when you didn't know me and I didn't go up to you. There you go. Very polite. And I would have thought you were crazy. Leah, Sarah, we've run out of time, ladies. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.